Section 11 of The White Heart of Mojave by Edna Brush Perkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter 11 Snowstorm and Sandstorm. Breakfast was late next morning, like Sunday breakfasts in houses. Charlotte asked if it was Sunday. No one knew what day it was in the far off world but we proclaimed it Sunday at Wild Rose. It was a true Sunday, a day of rest after hard exertion, a still day washed clean by the mighty sun, immense and still. The great bowl curved tranquilly to the tranquil hills. The cedars and pinions along its edge glistened like little bright fingers pointing at the sky. During the middle of the day the sun was hot, in the morning and the evening the big fire blazed. Camp in the cedars was lovely enough to stay in forever, but shortly after noon the worrier announced that he must find the charcoal kilns. He could not be beat by them. The little trees were so beguiling, the tranquil brightness of the mesa so inviting, that we followed him, buoyed up by the cold, clear air. We wandered along the base of Baldy to where a small purple mountain jutted into the great basin. Around that we went, leisurely picking our way over the rough ground, until, at the extreme northern end of the bowl, we found an attenuated wraith of a road leading up into a heavily wooded canyon. A road must once have been the way to somewhere, and we followed it, climbing steeply for nearly a mile. It brought us to a small level spot, where, made of rocks like the mountains, and indistinguishable until we were right on them, stood seven immense charcoal kilns, like a row of giant beehives. They were so big that we could walk upright through their doorways that looked like arched openings in their sides. Old Tom Adams had said that they were used in the seventies to make fuel of the cedars and pinions, to be hauled thirty miles to the smelter at a lead mine. They had been deserted so long that the camp rubbish had disappeared from around them, and they merged into their background, became again a part of nature herself. What strenuous endeavor they denoted! Everywhere men have left their footprints on the Mojave, sojourners always, never inhabitants. The seven kilns were the most impressive testimony of brief possession that we saw, more impressive even than the twenty-eight-mile-long trench that brought the water to Skidoo. We had seen it from there, crossing high ridges. In the great bowl of wild rose it was clearly marked, going from side to side and vanishing up the first ridge which we had climbed to Baldy. The cost and labor of making it must have been immense. Mojave was already breaking down the edges, preparing to brush it away. But it will be a long time before she can obliterate those kilns. They will still be eloquent in that remote fastness, long after Keeney Wonder and Rhyolite are gone. Behind the kilns a dim path climbed the mountainside to a little secret spring, an oval rock basin not more than five feet long, and so deftly hidden that we wondered what prospector first had the joy of finding it. From the elevation of the spring we could look along the length of Wild Rose Canyon, where the sagebrush smoothed to a blue and green and purple sea, 
and through its narrow opening to the white serenity of Mount Whitney. Thus framed, the white peaks seem to float in the blue sky. Very swiftly, Mojave brushes men off, but always with a fine gesture. From the midst of her most obliterating desolations, she never fails to point at some far-off shining. Too late, we learned that the little spring at the head of the canyon would have been the place for our camp. Not only would we have had the delight of its cold, pure water, but the ascent of Mount Baldy looked shorter and easier from there. Perhaps we each cherished the hope of moving up next day and trying once more to scale the glittering ice wall with the help of our woodchopper's axe and the rope from the wagon. But we never discussed the idea, for that night the dreaded storm crept over the mountains. It came stealthily on padded feet, putting out the stars. At dawn, big, wet snowflakes, gently sifting through the still air, awoke us. During the day the storm increased. The wind arose and blew in gusts, seemingly from every direction. Fortunately, the trees afforded plenty of big wood, so we were able to keep a roaring fire, though the heavily falling wet snow sometimes threatened to put it out. It snowed so fast that we were shut in by white walls not more than twenty feet away. We pitched our tent with the opening toward the fire and tried to get some shelter in it while the worrier hunted the horses. The tent was the only serious mistake in the outfit. It was a light, waterproof silk tent with a pole in the middle. We had expected to use it as shelter from the wind and had tried once before at Emigrant Springs. On that occasion, its lightweight material had flapped and rattled in the blast until we were glad to creep outside and sleep under the edge of a rock. Before morning, it blew down. The only practical tent for the desert is a very low one, like a pup tent, made of heavy canvas, with extra-long pegs that must be driven deep and buried in the sand. During the eternity of snowstorm in which Charlotte and I waited for Molly and Bill, we alternated between holding up the pole in the gusts of wind and rushing out between them to drive in the pegs with the axe. This, and the necessity of constantly building up the fire, kept us wet and cold all day, for the snow was not the dry, whirling snow of really cold climates, but was as wet as a heavy rain. It clung so we could not shake it off and melted on our clothes. The worrier did not retrieve Molly and Bill until four o'clock. It was late to move, but the storm showed no sign of abatement, and we remembered with growing affection the shack at the entrance to the canyon. Hastily packing in the white downpour that hissed through the air, we left camp in the cedars. As soon as we had descended a little way into the basin, the snow ceased, but a white cloud continued to hang over the place where our charming camp had been. During the remainder of the day and throughout the night, heavy clouds veiled all the mountains, occasionally dropping flurries of snow around us. An icy wind rushed down the canyon. When we reached the shack, it seemed palatial. We cleared out the rubbish by throwing it down the hill in front of the door, the approved way of cleaning up on the desert. When there are too many cans, you throw them behind the bushes, 
and we had learned to do it with great vigor and accuracy of aim. Much to the worrier's amusement, we scrubbed the table and tried to wipe off the cracked, rusty stove set up on three empty gasoline tins. That stove was a marvel in the art of consuming much fuel without emitting any heat. We took turns huddling close to it. The wall sheltered us from the wind, but as far as the stove was concerned, we might almost as well have been outdoors. After supper, we had to reckon with the dungeon that was the bedroom. The worrier recommended it highly, but we viewed it with a certain awful apprehension. We had a devil's choice between that and the frigid outdoors that kept beating on the shack with gusts of wind. We made the mistake of choosing the dungeon. When the candle was blown out, fear crouched in the blackness. All the tales we had ever read of prisoners in damp cellars assailed us. Horrors, tortures, black holes. The terrors of these man-made fears in this shut-in, man-made place were far worse than the wild outdoors. Presently little scratchings and gnawings apprised us that we were not alone. Unbearable then was the walled darkness. We gathered up the bed and went outside, stepping carefully over the worrier who, forever faithful, was sleeping across the door. The clean outdoors. Let it snow, let it hail, let the water run down the mountain and seep through the bed, let the wind tear at the ponchos. It was nothing compared to being shut up in a dark place. About midnight we were suddenly struck again by a terrific din. After the first tense moment, we recognized it as coyotes howling in the canyon. That was nothing either compared to vague little scratchings and gnawings in an eight-by-ten shack. Next day the storm continued, with clear intervals during which we rushed out to spread our clothes and blankets in the sun that thirstily drank up the snow at the bases of the mountains. Scotty beguiled the hours, and the weird tales of Lord Dunsany read aloud beside the cracked stove, never had a more appropriate setting. All around the mountains were white, except where some insistently black rock heaved out. Clouds hurried across the sky like Indians galloping on the warpath. The wind screaming around the rocks was their war-whoop. In the moments of peace between their raids, huge giants of clouds shook their fists at us over the walls. The silence of Mojave was torn to tatters, yet somehow we still felt it. Just as the wild tales we read intimated a stillness behind, so the tumult was a ripple on an indomitable peace. You have seen a little whirlwind plow a furrow through the water of some glassy lake, making quite a bit of a tumult, but leaving undisturbed the tranquility of the surface beyond its narrow path though between the walls of the canyon where we camped we could not see the still surfaces, we sensed them. The storm was an incident. Mojave took it and made a strong song. Wild Rose Canyon was the furthest point of our journey. From the old shack the going home began. The sun rose brilliantly on the following morning and deceived us into starting back to Emigrant Springs. As soon as we had left the narrow canyon and could once more see the expanse of the sky, we knew the storm was by no means over. 
We even debated returning to our palace, cracked stove, black hole, and all. But when you have broken camp, found the horses, packed up and started, a two-hour-long process, you will risk almost anything rather than turn back. There were compensations, too, even for the wind which shortly came to life again and thrust its knife to our hearts. The sky was a magnificent spectacle. It was not gray, nor overcast, nor brooding, but full of torn-up, piled-up, tumultuous clouds, a fitting canopy for the country beneath it. The top of Emigrant Pass is a big mesa, surrounded by all kinds of mountains, from the broken, battered buttresses and steep snow peaks of the Panamints, to smooth, bare, rounded hills folded over each other and dimpled like upholstered sofas. In bursts of sunshine, the shadows of the clouds raced over them all, snatching at each other and getting mixed up in the canyons. Sometimes a cloud spilled out its contents, and for a while obliterated one of them. Toward noon the clouds made a concerted attack on the sun, calling up new cohorts until at last they succeeded in covering him entirely and keeping him covered. Then a great change fell upon Mojave. She became forlorn, her bright colors faded into gray. The brush shivered in the wind, and made a cold crackling sound. A few immense Joshua palms scattered over the mesa waved their grotesque arms like monsters in pain. The wind whistled through their stiff, spiky leaves. They were in bloom with a heavy mass of waxy white flowers on the end of each branch. The sun had polished the flowers, tipping every branch with a silver ball. Now they stuck up into the lead-colored sky dull, lead-colored things. All the familiar places that had been drenched with sunshine, brilliant with color, almost as magical sometimes as the burning sands themselves, now appeared in this sad, gray mood. After leaving the top of the pass, we crossed a large, high plateau known as the Harrisburg Flat. On the way over to Wild Rose, it had been still and hot, the openings between the mountains had hinted at the illusions of Death Valley behind them. Now a cloud full of wind and snow rolled up out of the narrow opening of Emigrant Canyon. Storms were all around us, but until that moment we had hoped that we might escape. There was no escape. The Harrisburg Flat became a white, whirling fury. The wind that smote us was like a solid, moving wall. The cloud was not made of snow, but of ice, a fine hail that cut our faces. It was so dense that we could not see ten feet in front of the wagon. We had some difficulty in making Molly and Bill face it, but it was necessary to go on. All day the icy wind had been pressing upon us. Now it was so cold that we felt we could not withstand it long. Fortunately, the sheltering walls of the canyon were not far, but the half-hour during which we struggled toward them seemed an eternity. The worrier shouted at the laboring horses, and for the first time when he knew we could hear him, he cursed. By the time we reached the canyon, the hail had stopped, but the terrible wind continued. It seemed as though it would rip the bushes out of the ground. In place of the ice, 
fine particles of sand assailed us. Had the wash not been thoroughly wet, we would have had more of it. It must have rained violently in the canyon, or else, in the dusk, we missed the particular route among the rocks by which we had come up, for the way was so washed out that the worrier could hardly pilot the load. Every bit of energy we had was centered on reaching the ruined shack at Emigrant Springs. When we were able to say anything at all, we speculated about how dirty it might be, and whether or not there was a stove in it. The dirt was a certainty, but nobody could remember about the stove, as we had avoided the shack when we were there before. After a freezing eternity, we came around the last bend of the canyon. Home was in sight, and our hope perished, for smoke was coming out of the chimney. Not only was there a stove, but there was a man snugly camping beside it, an unknown man, a usurper, a robber. We were full of angry, helpless indignation. If it's Tom Adams, the worrier snapped, we'll throw him out. But it was not Tom Adams. It was another old-timer, an old man, who wandered ceaselessly to and fro over the desert. He was a gentle soul, but we were in no mood to appreciate that then. Of course he offered to move out of the shack when he saw ladies coming on such a bitter night, and equally, of course, we could not allow it. If Charlotte and I chose to invade the wilderness, we must take the chances of the wilderness as other people did. Our pride was involved, and we had to refuse very summarily, even rudely, before the old man would accept our objection. Then he retired into the shack with hurt dignity, while we pulled down some more of the corral fence to make a blazing fire. We solaced ourselves with the belief that the outdoors was better than the shack anyway as it had been better than the black hole. In the course of time we were warm again, and managed to keep warm through the night. In the morning the innocent usurper sent us, via the warrior, a pan of hot biscuits, a most welcome and delicious gift. Charlotte and I called on him later to thank him, and make amends if we could. He entertained us for two hours with the story of his travels, but he would not accept our invitation to dinner, saying that he wasn't used to dining with ladies. We sincerely hope it was not a sarcasm. The question which the possession of the shack raised is rather a difficult one. Was our pride worth more than the true chivalry of a kindly soul? To us it was, to him it was not. The wind continued to blow with violence for several days, though we had no more rain nor snow. It is easy to see how the desert has been torn to its rough harshness. That steady, blowing wind alone could wear the mountains to their jagged outlines, crumbling the softer rock down to fill the valleys. It picks up the sand and uses it to grind the mountain smooth. It piles it against the cliffs to make new foothills, and hollows it out to make new canyons. It drives the rain against the mountains to wash down rolling rocks along the gorges and digging the deep trenches across the mesas. Where no network of roots holds a surface soil, wind and rain work rapidly. 
on the homeward journey from wild rose we understood the cut-up mesas and the gouged-out canyons better down in the mesquite valley where we took the sandy road along the edge of the marsh instead of the rocky one by which we had come because bill had lost a shoe we saw what the wind can do with sand in the afternoon we reached the foot of the mesa that leads from emigrant canyon to the bottom of the valley and were at the beginning of old johnny's sand dunes it had been a sparkling day with a clear sky but the wind was still blowing the mesquite valley was as hot as we remembered it but after the ice cloud on the harrisburg flat only two days before it seemed a delicious hotness with the assurance of seasoned travelers able to make a dry camp anywhere charlotte and i insisted on stopping there for the night molly and bill would take four hours to make the nine miles of deep sand to salt creek and we had always hated to make camp in the dark the worrier wanted to go on he said he had a hunch that we ought to but he allowed himself to be persuaded we should have heeded that hunch of an old timer end of section eleven